This is an ABC podcast. and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. It's Aggie here for your Monday. Well, what a weekend it has been. But in line with New Wear Independence Day this week, we want to acknowledge Fahai Tapu Hevanga Hau New Wear. Fakatuleva Hevanga Hau New Wear, Mo Etauanga Fakamotu, Ma Etau Atuhao, which means sustain New Wear language and culture for future generations. Well, what have we got on the show today? That was just some of the flying Fijian supporters back home, even though results didn't go their way. Also, the iconic wooden buses in Samoa. Is it time for them to go? To us who don't own cars because it's cheaper compared to riding a taxi. I guess that's why I would be very disappointed if these buses would cease to exist. Also, there's a new government in Aotearoa, but what does that mean for our Pacifica communities? Stay tuned for more on these stories. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. A historic referendum on whether to recognise Indigenous people in Australia's constitution has failed, with the majority of Australians voting against the proposal. This is Prime Minister Anthony Albanese on Saturday night conceding defeat. I want to say that while tonight's result is not one that I had hoped for, I absolutely respect the decision of the Australian people and the democratic process that has delivered it. When we reflect on everything happening in the world today, we can all give thanks that here in Australia, we make the big decisions peacefully and as equals with one vote, one value. And that was Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Now, this comes after Pacific Islanders warned, could a no outcome damage Australia's reputation in the region? Well, we are joined now this morning by Pacific Beat reporter Marion Farr, who's on the ground in Torres Strait, which is a region that shares a border with Papua New Guinea. And with that, I say good morning, Marion. Good morning, Aggie. Nice to be with you. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. First off, what is the feeling on the ground after Saturday's referendum defeat? Well, the Torres Strait, as you know, has a large uh, Indigenous community and there was really strong support for the Yes campaign that we can see in the results that came out on Saturday night. So 72% of people here on Wyburn or Thursday Island, which is the administrative hub for the Torres Strait, yes, 72% voted yes in favour of establishing uh, an Indigenous voice to Parliament. So uh, in in light of the kind of national results, there's been a lot of disappointment um, on the ground about the overall outcome. I think for some it will take uh, some time to figure out how to move through this and what the next steps are. But um, certainly from speaking with people here, um, there is still a strong sentiment uh, that this isn't the end of the road and a feeling of not wanting to give up on the fight for their rights here here in the Torres Strait. So really, was it an, uh, was the outcome a bit of a shock for those there in Torres Strait and I suppose across Australia? 
I think leading up to the referendum, polling was, uh, national polling was showing a strong support for the No campaign. And many people were aware of that across the country and in the Torres Strait. There were a few that kind of um, hadn't been um, hearing about the polls and who were quite shocked um, because here in the Torres Strait, at least, as I mentioned, there, there was quite strong support for yes and there wasn't a visible no campaign. Um, in the end, the national figures showed that 40% of people in Australia voted yes and 60% voted no, or at least um, that's where the, the number numbers sit at the moment. And the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, is the only state or territory in Australia to have voted yes. Um, so when we kind of look at look at the distribution of votes, more more yes voters were concentrated in the capital cities where the no votes uh, seem to be more concentrated in regional and remote areas, but that didn't really hold true for, for remote Indigenous communities like Torres Strait. Um, the no campaign... The No side did wage a very strong campaign that included some prominent Indigenous voices. And so even in the Indigenous communities, there was some support for the No campaign. And that was um, mainly um, uh, motivated by a desire to not have a voice to Parliament, but to go for something like a treaty and um, to, to prioritise that over this um, sort of advisory body that was being proposed. Mm. Marion, whether it was a yes or a no campaign, I know many had said it was confusing, that not many people understood uh, the campaign mm. itself. So do you think that led to the outcome of these results? I think that did play um, a role. And speaking with he people here in the Torres Strait, there was a lot of confusion. There were some people who, who said um, that they really struggled to reach a decision um, and, yeah, it was sort of a very difficult process to weigh up how to vote. I think there were a few that said that, um, you know, initially they were like, yeah, we'll vote yes. But then they saw these sort of prominent people coming out in support of the no campaign and, and very sort of strong messaging um, within the no campaign. And that planted a seed of doubt in their mind about how to vote. Um, there was a lot of disinformation as well that was spreading around on social media and among community networks. And um, I think that that um, also played a role in um, in how the outcome, how it turned out. Now, this referendum was being watched closely in the Pacific. So what have their reactions been? I think this will be seen as a very disappointing result for the Pacific. As you know, Aggie, uh, the region feels very strongly about the rights of Indigenous people, and that extends to first the First Nations people of Australia. And there are really strong feelings of solidarity um, among the Pacific um, with, with the First Nations people of Australia. So in the lead up to this referendum, Pacific leaders and politicians, some very prominent figures did come out and say that a no vote would harm Australia's reputation in the Pacific. And so um, uh, we'll have to see how that plays out moving forward and whether that has some sort of tangible outcomes in terms of Australia's relationship with the region. But even locally here in the Torres Strait, there are some Pacific Islanders working here and I um, I was hanging out with them on, on referendum night um, when, when the results were coming in and they were really visibly disappointed. Um, this is not the result that they were hoping for. Uh, it's very understandable as to how they would be processing this outcome. So moving forward, where to now? Well, I think each, um, you know, 
each community across Australia, Indigenous communities, um, that's, you know, something that they're kind of taking some time to answer and to process um, what this outcome means. Uh, um, the Yes campaign or very uh, the prominent figures in the Yes campaign have called for uh, seven days of silence um, in in uh, following the vote. And so there is this strong sense of um, just wanting to take time to breathe, to heal and to figure out how to move through this. In the Torres Strait, um, there is a strong history of activism that stretches back to the Mabo decision and before that. And um, so there is a lot of desire for local autonomy and self-determination here. And that's definitely something that, you know, people have said to me that they still want to continue to pursue. Um, there are some mixed views about how to achieve that, but um, there has been a strong sense of um, not wanting this to be a setback um, for the community. Uh, so moving forward then, is this sort of just business as usual? What is the community just there saying? How are they going to move forward? I think it's different for individuals. There are some people who, um, you know, are just going about their life and going back to the things that, that bring them joy, um, you know, we spoke with one woman yesterday who's a local artist and she said that's that's the thing that will bring healing for her, just going back to her art. Um, you know, there were a few friends up here who went out on the boat and, you know, just got back to country and, and tried to, um, you know, enjoy some beautiful weather up here and, uh, you know, Put put the put the referendum and the the kind of difficult campaign behind them. Um, there are local leaders here who are pushing for. Um, for they have a vision of self-determination and self-governance that they're pushing for separate from the voice to parliament, and so I think that will become a big focus uh, for mm. the Torres Strait at least. Definitely, and just obviously sending our love uh, out there to the Torres Strait Islanders. Marin Far, we appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, Aggie. No worries. Again, ABC reporter Marion Farr there in the Torres Strait. And if you are in Australia and you or anyone you know needs support, you can call the Indigenous Helpline 13 Yarn on 13 9276 for crisis support designed and delivered by Indigenous people. And you can also call Lifeline on 13 11 14. I'm Aggie DeBold. This is Pacific Beat. Pacific Beat. While New Zealanders have opted for change, voting in a new government and a new Prime Minister. New Prime Minister Christopher Luxon is a first-term Prime Minister and an untried politician. He'll be tasked with fixing many of New Zealand's problems, including a broken housing system, which has disproportionately affected many Pacific Island families. This was National Party leader Christopher Luxon on election night, saying the results are a mandate for change. And I am immensely proud to say that on the numbers tonight, National will be in a position to lead the next government. New Zealanders are going to wake up to not only a new day, but the promise of a new government and a new direction. Because New Zealanders have chosen change and our new government will deliver it. Newly elected to Prime Minister of New Zealand, Christopher Luxon. But joining us live this morning is Kalia Strong, a senior journalist and Pacific Media Network from Aotearoa. With that, I say morena. Morena, Aggie. Good morning from New Zealand. <laughs> Thank you very much, Kalia, for joining us this morning. I do have to say, are you surprised about how the election results have turned out? Why or why not? Oh. 
You know what? This is a very exciting time for our our country, but also as a journalist, this is something we go a little bit crazy over. Not something unexpected, though. There was this mood for change that everyone's talking about. But in regards to Pacific peoples, it, we're, we're looking at what impact that will have because the Labour government that was in government had the largest Pacific caucus that we've ever had. And with that representation, and now the change of government means that we are going to be losing a chunk of that Pacific Caucus. Kalia, I must say now that the dust has settled over the weekend, uh, you talk about the Pacifica representation. So with the new national lineup, are there any many Pacifica faces we could see? Well, we might see um, Funoti Agnes Loheni come back in representing the National Party. She was on the list. And then there's a surprise maybe in the Te Atatū or our West Auckland electorate, but she's only leading by Angie Nichols, Nicholas, only leading by 30 votes. And by the time we count, we've got half a million special votes still to be counted. So the dust hasn't quite settled yet. We need to wait until um, the 2nd of November when that will be locked in. I mean, what does an, a national government mean for our Pacifica community? Well, it, it, like you mentioned in your intro, the housing situation is really dire and especially for Pacific populations, home ownership rates are very, very low. And so some of the the fears for the Pacific community are some of the changes that the National Party wants to make in their first 100 days. Part of this is is going back on a decision to make prescriptions free before you would pay $5 or so to get your medication. And what the Labour government did is they just completely removed that so you could always pick up your medication and so whether that is going to have an implication if that is reinstated and also they're going to recategorize how benefit payments are calculated so that could mean for someone on a disability $60 less a week so these are all big changes that will have a significant impact on our Pacific community. Uh, Carly, are we aware or are you, sorry are you aware of how the actual uh, Pacifica community voted? Interesting. It looks like there was very low voter turnout in the electorates that had high Pacific populations. So we're talking, we always talk about South Auckland, but there are a few key electorates where it looked like only half of the voting population turned up to vote. So this could have, this could point to the Pacific population as not bothering or they do we do unfortunately have historic low representation when it comes to voter turnout, but it seems like this this didn't even come close to what it was in the last election, where the, the Labour government had a huge landslide victory and didn't actually need any other parties to govern. Yeah, I'm wondering why was there such a rejection of Labour? I mean, you do say that there were low voting counts uh, from our Pacifica community, but are they, uh, is any of our community members telling you something different? I think what what's coming through to us is is they failed to engage the Pacific community, and we always talk about you know being right in and understanding the issues. But when it came to the Labour Party, they almost they almost diluted their message to please everyone, and because of that, they they lost some of their voters to more progressive parties like the Green Party, and then even their Maori voter base, the the Maori Party did extremely well in this election. So it shows a change, and, and perhaps the dissatisfaction with with the current status quo that was. Uh, you have to tell us there is obviously some good news for Te Pāti Maori, and then even the Green Party. Who are the ones that have uh, made the cut? Yeah, you're right. So in the Green Party, there's a, a, a count, 
a local politician called Fa'anana Efeso Collins that you'd be familiar with, Aggie, but he spe- has spent six years in local politics and then decided to change his allegiance from the Labour Party to run for national politics as part of the Green Party. And the Green Party did really well in this election. They're bringing in five new MPs, and one of those is Fa'anana Efeso Collins. So he'll be very proud to suddenly double the Pacific representation in the Green Party. And then moving to Te Pāti Māori, there are separate electorates that the Māori population can vote on in our New Zealand system. And, and so usually there has only been one one out of six that was held by Te Pāti Māori, but this time it looks like they're going to be they're leading three. So, so that means that there's almost double representation on last time, and it does mean perhaps a shift away again from the Labour Party. So, Carly, can you tell us, uh, good old New Zealand first Winston Peters was touted as being the kingmaker to sway, but is he still in that position, or do they absolutely not need him? Well, it's 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 still a question mark at this stage. The if National joins with their coalition partner Act, they will have a majority of one seat, and that's not enough given that there's a slight overhang with how the electorates have be, have turned out. So they might need him once the special votes are counted. And so it really we're in limbo for a couple of weeks. So we 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 we're talking about him, Winston Peters, New Zealand First, as being very necessary as the kingmaker, but. At, at the moment, it's it's not sure if he'll have that power or not. Uh, but I do quickly want to just get in because I know cost of living. We did speak about this last week with the panel that we had here uh, on Pacific Beat. How will the new government respond to these concerns? What they're wanting to do is rate, is change how our income tax brackets are calculated. And so what that will mean is just. There's less tax if, if say, you're you're earning over the line of forty eight thousand. Perhaps that'll be raised a little bit more to reflect modern day incomes. But with with that, they've promised the, these tax cuts, but they only really apply to a very small percentage, say three percent of the population. So. Is it actually going to have much effect? They keep talking about the squeezed middle, but when it comes to Pacific communities, we're like, oh, sometimes we actually we we identify in the lower, unfortunately, the lower income bracket. So there, there hasn't been much promised for the lower income bracket. So we'll have to wait and see. Absolutely. It is a wait and see. Uh, Kali, I do want to just say uh, malo abito. Thank you very much for your time this morning. No worries. That is Carly Strong, senior journalist at Pacific Media Network in Aotearoa. Stay tuned. This is Pacific Beat. What's it like for those on the front lines of science across the Pacific? Come find out on our new series, Pacific Scientific. Join us for Midnight Hunts. Those one right there. <laughs> I didn't even see that one. Trek to remote villages. Is there someone giving birth? Yes. And climb up volcanoes. We're standing seven metres above where your home was. Get a glimpse of science's lives across the region. Pacific Scientific, Mondays at 3.30pm PNG time. Right here on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie the Bowl. Gosh, after narrowly defeating Wales and their epic win over the Wallabies, the Flying Fijians have played their biggest match to date with a showdown against England in the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup. But it just wasn't enough as the final score landed on 30-24 to England. Uh, so joining us from Suva this morning is ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lide Movono with that. I say, Bula, sis, how are you doing? 
Bulam, Bulam, Agnes, you know, I've had better mornings. Uh, this was definitely not one of them, but <laughs> all good here. Just coming to terms with now uh, being out of this competition. Mm. Well, I mean, what's the public reaction been to the match since this morning? Well, look, we, as you know, are super passionate, and that's understating it a bit when I describe how, um, you know, how crazy we are about rugby here. So there's a lot of unhappy people. Um, You know, there are a lot of people questioning uh, what they're calling the inconsistent calls made by the referee. But um, I think on the whole, um, many Fijians are very happy with how um, this particular Fijian team did in the Rugby World Cup. But um, still a lot of people reeling from Mm. how that Yeah, and that's it. I'm sure you and the rest of Fiji were up for the game. Was there a highlight, though, of the match for you? Um, yeah, I think for me it was, um, you know, the tries coming one after another in, in, you know, in a space of about two, three minutes, Fiji came in real quick and they started to really find their ground. But, um, I guess if I'm honest, it was a little too late for them. And so for me, it was that it was seeing them play so well, you know, play the kind of rugby that you don't, you haven't, you know, been able to expect off a Fiji side for a very long time. So that was wonderful to watch. And, and also being in and amongst hundreds of Fijian supporters early in the morning. Morning at at the big Vodafone Arena. That was that was pretty um, once in a lifetime to imagine to to be part of that kind of energy. Yeah, look, uh, Fiji. They've beaten England before in a pre World Cup match. So I'm wondering, was there some sort of anticipation that Fiji could do it all over again? Absolutely, I think it was it was on everyone's uh, minds and certainly on on the lips of people as they talked about uh, you know what was going to come next. And people had started to to plan for the semifinals and and as you know, Fiji's never been in the semifinals. This was, um, I, if, if memory serves, our third time in the quarterfinals. And and again, it's been 16 years since we've made it you know out of the playoffs into the the final stages of the competition. So people had started to really grasp the idea that. You know, this was a team who was good enough to advance further into the competition. So, yes, there was some expectation that uh, we would be making it into the semifinals. Yeah, look, I know you spoke a little bit about how many are, are, are reeling from the ref's decision and that has sort of played out throughout the Rugby World Cup, I suppose, many times for our Pacific countries. So is that the sort of the Talanoa that's been happening? Do you feel like something needs to be looked into? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's the Talanoa across, uh, you know, just the Tanoas and the, and the cover sessions, but it's also being talked about at national level. People have seen a lot of, you know, what they're calling inconsistent um, calls by match officials since the very first um, opening pool game against Wales, for example. And, you know, they've talked about it in Samoa's matches and, and certainly in, in, in Tonga's as well. People um, just don't think that Southern Hemisphere teams or teams that are often referred to as Tier 2 rugby teams are being treated in the same way as, say, their Northern Hemisphere uh, uh, brothers. And so that's something that's been called on. But um, for the, for the, to their credit, the Fijian management and the Fiji teams continue to talk about just doing better, just, you know, seeing um, something special is what they're calling this, um, seeing the, the Super Rugby franchise teams, and that's the Drua and the uh, Moana Pacifica teams, kind of have a really interesting impact on the national teams of the Pacific Islands. So uh, for the most part, Fijians are standing proud and saying, you know, that they're back for more. And so there's certainly something to look forward to when the World Cup comes to Australia in, in September of 2027.
Yeah, so really, what is next for the Flying Fijians? For the Flying Fijians, what they're saying is going back to the drawing board and capturing what um, I, I think it was the Fijian coach called this morning the something special, the something special that they started. And that something special is seeing the impact that a professional setup can have on a national team or, or the, the Drua ingredient or the Drua secret is what they're calling, which basically means now that Pacific Islands um, countries have their own super rugby teams, their players don't have to go so far away to play their trade they don't have to you know go to europe and and and, um, asia for example so they can play close to home which means that their chances of playing in the national teams and therefore boosting the capabilities of the national teams of the pacific is now that much better so that's what's next for the fiji team insofar as the management and the coaches have said is coming back capturing that something special and building on it so much more Absolutely. Hey, look, Lee, there, while I've got you on the line, I'm going to shuffle a little bit. Uh, in regards of reshuffling, Prime Minister Siti Veni Rambuka has made a cabinet reshuffle. I mean, what's the reaction to that? Um, that's another shocking uh, um, uh, situation, Agnes. People um, are, are also still reeling from that. And, and what I understand is that the ministers themselves who have been reshuffled uh, weren't necessarily aware that they were now being moved. And so a lot of them are coming into work today um, to a new workplace completely. So it wasn't um, exactly a complete surprise. People were expecting changes to at least the Attorney General's portfolio. So um, over the weekend, though, there have been a lot of um, reaction to um, the, the new uh, incoming Attorney General's appointment, uh, people saying that, you know, he shouldn't get the position. And so we're, we're going to be seeing a, a lot of that unfold over the next 24 hours or so. Uh, but as you know, our Prime Minister is, is actually on a visit to Australia at the moment at the invitation of um, the Australian Prime Minister Albanese. So it's going to be the big news of the week is to see whether or not that reshuffle actually happens the way the Prime Minister had hoped that it would. Awesome. Uh, Lee there, look, thank you so much for just joining us this morning. It is unfortunate that the Flying Fijians are out, but, uh, you know, the support is 100 every time I see it. So uh, well done for that. But thank you again for joining us this morning. No, absolutely. Always a pleasure. Vinaka, mahalo. No, no worries. That, of course, is uh, ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lide Movono, here on Pacific Beat. Yes, welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we head around the region uh, just to see what is happening. And of course, that is brought by the beautiful uh, producer, Talia Aulitia, joining us this morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Aggie. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Hey, look, let's get more on that Fiji cabinet reshuffle, though. What's yes. happening? So as you just heard from um, Lethe Mavono in um, Fiji, there has been a reshuffle with um, Prime Minister Sitaveni Rambuka announcing the changes. So I'll just go through um, some of those changes with you. Philomoni Vossarongo is the new Attorney General and Minister for Justice, and his former portfolio of lands and mineral resources has been given to the former AG, Siromi 
Turanga. Um, PM Sitaveni Rambuka also announced that Iferemi Vasu has been reassigned to education, while Aseri Ranandrodro will take on the Minister for Itaki Affairs. Now, Mr Rambuka says the reshuffle is intended to enhance governance, improve policy coordination and further improve service delivery to the people of Fiji and will be effective as of tomorrow. However, there has already been concerns raised about the reshuffle with Fiji's Law Society saying that the appointment of Mr Vosorongo as the Attorney-General of Fiji um, is not what they are calling to be lawful and have written to the PM requesting he be withdrawn from the position that he's not even taken up yet. In a media statement signed by President Wiley Clark, the Law Society says the appointment cannot be lawfully made because Mr Vosorongo is disqualified from holding the office of Attorney General under Section 96-2B of the 2013 Constitution. The Society noted that it is a matter of public record that Mr Vosorongo, as a legal practitioner, pleaded guilty in a number of disciplinary proceedings before the Independent Legal Services Commission. Now, Mr Vosorongo, as reported in Fiji Village, says anyone that disagrees with his appointment can take it to the matter of court and that the Independent Legal Services Commission is different to being found guilty by a court. The Law Society says that it will pursue the matter if forced to do so, but hopes it won't be necessary. So definitely going to be one to watch. (laughs) One to watch, but one we have been watching is uh, Vanuatu, where the top court has now made a ruling on the political goings-on. Yeah, so Vanuatu's Supreme Court has struck out ousted PM Sato Kilman's constitutional petition with the judge Edwin Goldsborough ruling that the former PM had no arguable case. Now, you might remember last week that the former PM, Kilman, filed submissions that now that the now current PM, Shalo Salwa, it takes a bit to remember who's who and what they're doing, um, that his challenge to office was unlawful because he did not secure the 27 signatures required for a no-confidence motion in a 52-seat parliament. Now, at the time, Speaker Sioli Simeon had contended that there was a vacant seat at the time of the motion of no-confidence and that therefore only 26 signatories were required because, you know, working out the maths of the parliament. And as a result, um, after the Supreme Court made their ruling, he welcomed the court's ruling, seeing it as he did. Now, Judge Goldsborough said that there might be an appeal, but their function as a court was to determine whether to set a date for the hearing or strike out the petition based on the material presented. And he said that based on that material presented, that there is no arguable case. And that's why he struck it out. Now, RNZ Pacific is reporting that sources from the opposition say they will decide on whether they will appeal that judgment. That's crazy. <laughs> Vanuatu politics. We will keep our eyes and ears on that one. Hey, look, let's head to a bit of sports, though, because it was a big weekend uh, for Pacific Rugby League. Yes, indeed it was. So let's start in Port Moresby for the Pacific Bowl International, where Lachlan Lamb and Neen McDonald helped Papua New Guinea Kumuls beat Cook Islands 46-10. to Meanwhile, Australia beat Samoa 38-12 to to start their Pacific Cup campaign. Tries from Toa Samoa's Murray 
Torlongi and Luciano Leilua were not enough to stop the Kangaroos, but all reports from the match seem to have their eye on um, Samon fullback Sua Fa'alongu, who was on debut and definitely proving that he is one to watch in not a political sense, but in a dazzling on the field kind of way. And in the women's only game for Pacific teams, I think it's Australia and New Zealand, uh, compete but play each other multiple times, whereas the um, Samoa and Fiji only had one game against each other and that was on the weekend. And Fetu Samoa held off Fiji's Bully Cooler for a 26-12 victory at Santos National Football Stadium in Port Moresby in the first time the two nations have played each other in a women's test match, which is kind of crazy. Um, both Samoan wingers Lindsay Tui and Taylor Mapasua scored doubles in the win. The win was Fetu Samoa's first since a 52-8 to victory over Russia at the 2008 World Cup. And it just, I, I think it. It, like that, that story in itself proves the importance of getting game time, yes. of getting consistent international play, because how do you build your international team if you don't play international games? So I think it's an argument to keep going. That's Talia's two cents <laughs> and take down of sport. I love it. And look, just well done to all our Pacific teams and Pacific players. Uh, just amazing to Definitely. see. Eh? Yeah. So thank you again, though, Talia, for bringing us yeah, our no news wrap here on Pacific Beat. Nijam Footy. Hosted by me, Sam Wax. And me, Tenero Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today, and look forward to the next-gen Nijam Footy stars. Nijam Footy. Nijam Footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. Well, there's been concerns about the safety of Samoa's colourful old wooden buses. They have once again become a talking point in the capital, Apia. A recent crash claimed the life of one passenger and injured many others. The buses are the nation's oldest mode of public transport, but the latest incident has some questioning whether they should be retired for good. The ABC's Samoa reporter, Adele Fruin, has the story. It all happened during morning rush hour. A wooden bus struck a small car, flipping it upside down, leaving many passengers on the ground. Local authorities say that the driver and the bus were both unlicensed. Police have charged the driver with negligent driving, causing the death of a man and injuries to other passengers. With authorities confirming the bus failed a safety inspection. It's a tragic incident and one that has sparked a conversation about the feature of Samoa's wooden buses. I'm at Ubolo's main bus terminal where people swarm to catch the first bus to reach their destination. We're speaking to island residents to find out how they would feel if the customary wooden buses were to disappear one day. My name is Tom Farani. And I think that the use of wooden buses is significant, especially to us who don't own cars because it's cheaper compared to riding a taxi. I guess that's why I would be very disappointed if these buses would cease to exist. My name is Laura Ioane. I would lose my job if there were no wooden buses because I have no form of transportation. I live far and the road can only be accessed by the wooden buses, so it would be a great loss for me.
The colourful buses with wooden bodies on metal chassis have been a common sight on RPA's roads for over 30 years. However, in the 2000s, measures were put in place to phase them out. But due to high costs of importing buses, they are today still used under stricter safety standards. Yet many say the time has come for them to be replaced. Following the bus accident, the Land Transport Authority says it is reviewing the future operation of wooden buses on public roads. I think all bus drivers should keep in mind that the lives of all passengers are in their hands. Tongi Sao Chan Sao owns Sunrise Transport and has over 20 years experience operating wooden buses. He says most bus accidents are brought on by the driver negligence and violation of the law rather than the vehicles themselves. What bus drivers don't realize is that there are major impacts if they don't drive carefully. As an owner, I also use a breathalyzer to ensure all my drivers are not under the influence of alcohol and make sure they're not using any drugs. He says the buses play an important role, servicing isolated villages, something he says modern buses would not be able to do. For bus driver Sefo Sefo, his job is a form of serving his community. I believe the job that I have plays a vital role within families. This job has helped contribute to funeral, church and village commitments financially, but most importantly it has helped me care for my mother. The 38-year-old has dedicated 18 years of his life to serving the public through transportation. It was my hope to walk in the shoes my grandfather walked in, along with some of my uncles who did this line of work. I saw how much they contributed through their service, not only in helping our village, but also our families. Mr Sefo says any ban will have a major impact on him and his family. I grew up riding a bus. These buses were the pillars of transport in Samoa. I would be very sad if this becomes a reality because I have committed my life and am passionate about this line of work as a bus driver. On social media, many Samoans have shared their concerns about the safety of the buses. But Samoa's Land Transport Authority says although it is reviewing their operation, there are no immediate plans for phasing them out. Instead, in a public statement, it is calling on drivers and operators to make sure their buses are safe to protect the community. We urge the owners of our bus operators to ensure daily maintenance and checks before carrying out transportation services. You also have a responsibility to assist the authority in ensuring the safety of the public. And that was Adele Fruin in Apia with that report, which really I have to sort of think about. What do you think about the phasing out of the iconic wooden buses there in Samoa? Now, for myself, I know absolutely I haven't even been to Samoa yet and I haven't been able to even uh, hop on to one of these buses. But when you look at them, I've seen them through photos from family and friends and One thing that my family and friends have said when they've jumped on to these buses, it's one, the loud music that comes along with it, right? And then also it's just being there, having to experience being on one of those buses. It's been part of our culture for very, for very much a long time. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts 
Is it time to phase it out due to, of course, the latest incident, uh, which we have said it has questioned whether or not it's time to retire them for good? Uh, if you want to give your thoughts, you can hit to our ABC Pacific Facebook page. Uh, but very much because it's part of our culture, is it just because of the incidences that have happened? Is it time to phase out? I think I would love to go to Samoa one day and actually be able to hop on one of these buses because I know that these were the forms of transport that my parents used back in the day. And as you heard, some of these, uh, some of the community have said, we can't afford a car. We can't afford any other mode of transport. So this is the only way we can get around Samoa. So yeah, we would just love to hear your thoughts. Again, you can head to our ABC Pacific Facebook page uh, and discuss that and let us know uh, your opinions and your thoughts on this story. Tune in to SBS Samoa News on ABC Radio Australia. SBS Samoa News features independent news and stories connecting you to life in Australia and Samoan-speaking Australians by our friends at SBS Australia. SBS Samoa News. Tune in Mondays and Thursdays at 6.05am Samoan time for one hour of news in the Samoan language on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Aggie Dubawa, your host for Pacific Beat. Like a number of Pacific nations, the island of Guam was the stage of a major battle during World War II. Close to 20,000 servicemen lost their lives during the fighting, but over the past year, a research project has been exploring how the battle changed the landscape of Guam's beaches and reefs. Recently, divers from the U.S. National Park Services located 70 artefacts from the war that were dumped in shallow waters off the coast 80 years ago. Underwater archaeologist Annie Wright told Carl Evans there's fears about what impact it has on the environment. There is a known UXO dump off of one of the beaches. So post-World War II, they went out and dumped a huge amount of artillery shells, mortar shells, machine gun rounds. But, you know, since the 80s and years since World War II, it started to really spread over the ocean floor. So, There was a survey for that done in the early 2000s, and right now I'm working on comparing the results of that survey with the results of our survey. I'm not finished, but what I'm seeing so far is that this stuff has spread a lot, even further in the last 20 years since that initial survey was done. So it kind of started in one location in the 1940s and then spread farther where it was documented in the 2000s. And back in August, we were finding it all the way down to 200 feet deep um, just spread all across this area offshore of the beach. Is this ordinance that's been lying dormant? Like, is it still potentially active? And will this have to be referred to, to some sort of specialist who can go in and disarm them at some point? With underwater ordinance, it's usually left in place. Obviously, if there was a piece of UXO found on land, it's a lot more dangerous, right? There's not a whole lot of people like walking across the seafloor at like 200 feet, you know, and we're down there, but we're not, we're not touching it and we're not, you know, putting limbs <laughs> next to it. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting because the, the saltwater actually usually kind of leaks in slowly into into some of this UXO and kind of ruins the interior. So it's often not explosive, but that doesn't mean all of them are. So it's kind of, you know, judged on a case-by-case basis. What I find really interesting, the bigger danger is actually to the sea life and coral reef and what other, other, other type of bottom typography 
a natural environment might be there because a lot of the chemicals leach out of this ordinance and can kill whatever is around it. So that's the bigger danger than actual explosions from from these underwater UXOs. Yeah, no, it certainly doesn't take a scientist to understand that uh, underwater UXOs would not be compatible with uh, <laughs> with with marine life. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you've obviously found a, a lot of unexploded ordnance. Um, now that you've uncovered these, what what's the next step from here? Is there anything that you can do with these finds, I guess, from a scientific standpoint? Absolutely. I think the most interesting thing um, for me that came out of this project was, was when we, we did a lot of research related to the underwater demolition teams removing obstacles on the reef and how Mm. they created these craters. The Japanese put like physical obstacles like made out of wood or rock or a combination or barbed wire, that kind of stuff. And then the Americans sent um, what was then called underwater demolition teams. um, And they were actually the precursors of U.S. Navy SEALs. So uh, UDT teams were sent to shore prior to the actual invasion. So before they sent Marines to shore and landing craft. They sent these UDT teams to go in and blow up the obstacles that the Japanese had placed there. And they did that um, across the reef flats. That to me, I think is filling the biggest hole in history. And um, because hardly anybody knew that those craters were there, you know, they're, they're kind of hard to see with the naked eye, but once you start to, kind of look and you know what those are, you can kind of follow the pattern. And so that's something we've really been talking a lot about with some resource managers there at the park is, you know, how do we tell this story about how World War II like physically changed the landscape of these beaches? And that, was, that wasn't known before this project. Wow. And how do you think it, it has changed Guam? The craters at Assen Beach are pretty small. And while there was certainly some effect um, to the beach with erosion patterns and things like that, that's something that we are researching right now and interpreting from our data that we collected. But people have really adapted to using those spaces, which we were really kind of excited to hear. But like people use those blast craters like to fish from. They're like, we talked to a couple people who are like, oh yeah, I. I stand there and use that as my, you know, my, my fishing spot. Um, and so people know that that's kind of where like certain types of fish congregate, which I found really interesting. On the other hand, down at Agate, which is the other beach, that was where a larger hole in the reef was blasted. Not, not a small crater, but a 200 foot section of the reef was removed. And that was to allow large supply ships to land and unload because they couldn't get past the reef. And talking with local divers this summer when we were there, they were like, oh, yeah, I didn't know that that was where, you know, a, a hole was made. But we do know and do notice that that's where all the trash collects. And so that uh-huh. is a lasting impact um, that World War II has had on the reef and the environment there is that that hole that they created and that will never, you know, come back. I guess just summarising, I mean, the legacy of these craters, it remains to be seen long-term, what what impact they've had. Is that fair to say? Yes, yeah. And it's something we're hoping to figure out from all of the data that we have collected with this project. And that's underwater archaeologist Annie Wright speaking to ABC's Carl Evans. And we will bring you the findings of that report when the results are released next year.
And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. The Flying Fijians have bowed out of the Men's Rugby World Cup after losing to England 30-24 to in the wee hours of this morning. It's only the third time in history that Fiji made the quarterfinal stage of the tournament. But as you can imagine, rugby man country were behind the team and a lot of criticism has also been thrown at some of the referees' decisions during the game. I think on the whole, many Fijians are very happy with how this particular Fijian team did in the Rugby World Cup, but um, still a lot of people reeling from mm. how that match ended. That's Lide Movono there, ABC reporter in Fiji. I'll be back same time tomorrow, 6am PNG time, but you can hear us this afternoon at 3pm or so. Stay tuned because up next is the news. Coming up after that is Nisha Daily. But Pacific Beat was produced on the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Until next time, I'm Aggie Dubong and this is Pacific Beat.